This is the STEM Read Podcast. Welcome to the STEM Read Podcast. I'm your host, Jillian King Cargyle. I'm a writer, a book lover, and the director of NIU's STEM Read. And I'm Dr. Kristen Brennison, otherwise known as Hot Pink Tech. I'm an engineer and an educator and the director of professional development for NIU STEAM. Our episode today is Chainsaws and Wedding Cake with Lex Thomas. This is a very special episode of STEM Read. That means you should sit down on the couch and listen to it with your whole family. If your whole family enjoys wedding cake and chainsaws, that is. Our guests are writing team Lex Thomas. That's Lex Raby and Thomas Voorhees, authors of the Quarantine series. Quarantine the Loners was a STEM Read selection in 2015 and the subject of one of our favorite and most popular field trips. For those of you who haven't read it, Quarantine takes place in a high school, probably just like yours, except in this high school, a biological weapon is accidentally introduced. Oops. Oops. So, teachers who are listening, you just don't get a fair shake in fiction. All of the teachers hemorrhage and die within the first 30 (laughs) pages or so, and the students are pretty much left to fend for themselves. They get regular food drops every so often, and, you know, things go all right when there's still a hope that they're going to be rescued. But as the days and weeks go on, the students start to lose some of that hope and they break down into tribes based on their social cliques. So we like to explain it as Lord of the Flies meets The Breakfast Club. The books are scary and sciencey and cinematic and most importantly, really fun to read. We've used the book to explore concepts of human health, epidemiology, sociology, engineering and making, crisis management, and especially economics. So we sat down with Lex and Tom to talk about the quarantine series, their writing process, and to explore why horror holds such an attraction with readers and viewers. We'll also talk about 31 horror films in 31 days and hear about some of Lex and Tom's favorite scary books and movies. So Kristen, I know you're a fantasy gal. So what are your thoughts on on horror? We're doing this whole horror episode. Horror was always a fun genre for me. So I grew up in the 80s. Horror movies were at the core of every slumber party we went to. We spent our evenings with these shady characters like Leatherface, Jason, and Freddy, and Michael Myers. If we weren't watching horror, we were reading horror. I kind of, though, grew out of my horror phase a little bit. She said I'm more of a fantasy sci-fi girl. But I know that not all of us grow out of that phase. Horror is one of my favorite things to read and one of my favorite things to watch. I remember the first movie that scared me like crazy. It was Mr. Boogity. It's a Disney movie. Mr. Boogity? Mr. Boogity. (laughs) Yeah, my mom said to me before we started watching it, it's a Disney Sunday night movie. It won't be too scary. It was. She was wrong. Disney movies. I've reminded her for years. (laughs) The scars. Yes, the scars of Mr. Boogity, the Jillian King Cargyle story. (laughs) No, I always liked reading horror. Um, I read a lot of ghost stories. I read scary stories to tell in the dark, more scary stories to tell in the dark, anything with a ghost on it. And then I got into R.L. Stein and Christopher Pike, which led me to Stephen King. It kept going from there. 
The horror stories that I love, I like them because the monsters can be real and the bullies and the bad guys usually get punished in the end and evil is usually defeated by the end of the story. So say it has a happy-ish ending? Yeah, if you're the main character. Yeah. And you're a virgin and you didn't smoke or drink. Right. Horror also has a way of helping us understand the world or cope with the world. And there's an interesting article that was posted in The Nerdist several years ago about why do we love horror? And this quote kind of sums it up. Horror helps soothe our constant existential crisis. It gives us power over our place in the universe because we are naming it and addressing it. Today is our special post-Halloween episode with Lex Thomas, the authors of Quarantine the Loners, Quarantine the Saints, Quarantine the Burnouts, and Quarantine the Giant. We're Lex Thomas, yeah. Uh, We're a writing team. We combined our first names into a pseudonym. Uh, He's Lex, I'm Thomas. We wrote the Quarantine book series. So, speaking of your origin stories, what kind of students were you? I was uh, all right. I feel like in... When I was younger in grade school, I was a very nervous student. I was smart, but I would get so worked up when it was time to have a test that I would score really poorly. And then as I grew older, I I got a little better at that. But then I pretty much became interested in only in only art. I was like I became less interested in everything else and then ended up going out to, to going to art school for college and uh, sort of found my way back to writing after art school. I wrote some as a young adult. So in high school, I was a pretty good student. I would say I was sort of a, uh, a rule follower. And as a result, I got into student government a bit. I think I'm hard on the rule followers and uh, definitely the school president in the version of high school that is quarantine. Dickie Bellman is the president of the school of McKinley High in quarantine, and we turn him into sort of a a raving lunatic that navigates the halls and basically lives in the past. (laughs) I don't know why we made that choice, but um, maybe it's kind of fun to take it out on on your high school self. And then I was also sort of heavily involved in drama in high school. And so I did a lot of plays, a lot of musical. I was in Bye Bye Birdie and Grease and sort of all the standards. And I remember that being really fun. And I feel like that sort of feeds into the world we created for the the geeks in um, McKinley High, which is the high school in quarantine, this ever running, ongoing theater world. But you weren't you weren't in any sports? No sports for me. I I, rem- I remember there was a loophole that you could do weightlifting, which was not a team sport. And basically, it was just hanging out in the weight room and, uh, you know, counting the minutes until it was time to go home. So, Tom, you said that you kind of liked writing as a young adult and went away from it towards mm-hmm. art and then came back. So, so when did you know that you wanted to be a writer or a storyteller? Well, I definitely, yeah, I liked writing when I was younger and I wrote for the school paper, a lot of editorials and, and stuff like that. And I, 
but did enjoy writing a lot of like short stories and fiction when I was younger. Uh, but like I said, I went off and uh, became interested in visual art and went off to art school. And it was only when I came out of art school that I was I felt like I didn't know quite what I wanted to do with painting. And and then the only other thing I was interested at the time was uh, comedy. And at the time, you know, around uh, 90, 1999, the people were selling comedy scripts for humongous amounts of money. And uh, I thought, oh, maybe I could do that. And I got back into it through trying to write screenplays and then uh, after years in LA met Lex and we started writing screenplays together and uh, eventually one of those movie ideas was the idea for Quarantine which we were able to pitch it as a book and uh, that's my sort of roundabout way I ended up writing novels. And you did some stand-up comedy, too, right? Oh, God, don't tell anyone that. I didn't really. <laughs> no, not at all. I, I, uh, in that time when I was like, oh, I, I like comedy as well, I did, like, started going to some, like, night school class for stand-up comedy where you could get up in front of the class and try material. And then by the end, uh, I had, you know, I had a couple minutes of jokes and I went to some open mic in San Francisco <laughs> that I'd heard was a good place for people starting out and uh, I had a horrible experience and <laughs> I, I made the mistake of telling this guy who you know goes there regularly he asked like oh it's your first time are you nervous huh and I was like I, I think I'll do it all right I, I, I acted confident I was trying to like uh, you know talk myself or get myself in the zone and that seemed to really upset him so he sat in the front row right in front of the microphone and uh, get, like shook his head at every premise I would start and sort of would make really loud like Ugh, groans <laughs> oh, and uh, vocal like vocalize his displeasure at every joke and it would drove me it made me so angry as I was trying to do my first uh, bit that uh, it went really poorly and I drove home very angry and decided. I don't think I can performing is for me, and I, I. But I could still write. I could be a writer and write the write the jokes and uh, not have to be mocked by an audience. Yeah, did that guy, that heckler, make his way into any of the quarantine books? <laughs> yeah, he's a famous comedian now. No, I, there are hecklers in the books, but. Uh, I don't I remember nothing but just the looks on his face. I don't know how I could really get literary revenge on him. Yeah, it's not like every time I go to write a chainsaw battle, I think of that guy. <laughs> I, well, that would be great. If he had a identifying mark, a birthmark or scar or something, then I could I could lock on to that and put him in a book. But I really remember almost nothing about him but his attitude. <laughs> All right. So, Lex, how about you? When did you know you wanted to become a writer? So I went to a camp during my middle school years that was an art camp. And I remember writing my first short story then. And I think it was sort of like a writing prompt situation. Take a, take a look at a painting or a picture and write a story that comes off of that. And I remember I sort of wrote like a three-page horror story based on this path through the woods. And I think there was a figure sort of faced away from us. And I just, I think I just wrote a, a creepy wooded path story. Mm -hmm. And that was the beginning. And then I started to write short stories, I think all through high school. And I was also big into Stephen King short stories and Ray Bradbury short stories at that time. Um, and that probably fed into it. And I just, you know, I, I really enjoyed that 
and was also interested in film at the time and as i mentioned into theater um so all of that sort of fed into eventually trying out screenwriting and and then i met tom and we partnered up and the rest is history yeah Favorite Stephen King short story? I really like The Raft. That really freaked me out because I, I grew up in the country and would always swim in ponds. And actually, there I can think of a pond that had a raft just like that. And it totally freaked me out. The Lawnmower Man, the story, not the uh, horrible 90s movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, on which uh, it's based, uh, or the movie is based on the short story um, and has nothing to do with it. Uh, But I remember that really being gruesome. It's pretty short, I think. It's like two two or three pages maybe, but um, pretty, pretty effective. Yeah. I, I remember the, the lawnmower man when he ran over the rabbit, right? And he was eating the, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then at the end he has a stack of bu- fingers or body parts or something, you <laughs> know, in, in a, like a bird fountain or maybe, I think that's what it was. That was the part I remember was him eating the rabbit and the guy just wa- like standing there watching him for a really long time being like, oh, God. Uh, <laughs> I think that's the whole gist yeah. of the story. You're just going, ugh. I really should call somebody else, but I mean, he already started mowing. Yeah. <laughs> he does a decent job and, you know, he only <laughs> charges uh, 15 bucks a lawn. Yeah. I think it's interesting that you started out by writing comedy. But like comedy and comedy and horror are kind of like more related than you'd think. They like, I, or at least it feels that way to me. They're both like engineered to create some kind of automatic response you can't control of a laugh bursting out of you or a uh, or a, a gasp, and like it's all about overwhelming uh, the audience in either a pleasant or unpleasant way. Yeah, and I, well, I love horror comedies too. Like Shaun of the Dead. Yes. <laughs> yeah, they match pretty perfectly. Mm-hmm. Well, we were always writing comedies that were sort of blended with com- some genre movie genre, like it would be a, a hard-boiled cop action comedy, or we were forever working on this uh, screenplay about a a guy who meets a girl. Uh, during some romantic night and it just happens that's the one night a year she's in human form and the rest of the year she's like a a hideous sea hag from under the ocean (laughs) and so there was always some genre element in there and gradually those started to take more of the forefront of what we were writing until quarantine was just a straight genre idea that was just we were starting to entertain like doing just non-comedy genre movies by the time we pitched it as a book i remember tom had had been watching sort of like an 80s uh high school tropey movie and thought you know what if all the angst and danger that that you can feel in high school was actually real you know walking from your classroom to your locker was actually a physically dangerous situation and so we just started spitballing this sort of heightened world kind of akin to like stories like the warriors um about street gangs and then the next step was sort of thinking out what would accommodate that premise and i came up with the idea of a of a quarantine that would seal this world in and then it could evolve in its own way behind prison walls, essentially. 
Yeah, I remember we were watching, you know, some cliche high school movie and realizing like, oh, they're always the same and the groups are the same and the the basic uh, beats go the same. And wouldn't it be cool if all of these social groups were gangs that were competing violently instead of uh, competing for their position on the social ladder and popularity and things, the things that are normally in those kind of stories, just raising everything up to this life or death deadly level we thought actually kind of got the emotions of of high school crossed uh, better than literal stories about the situations you ac- you really deal with in high school. When I pitch it to teachers, I always say it's Lord of the Flies meets The Breakfast Club. Mm-hmm. That's, pre- that's pretty <laughs> <Yeah>. good. That <laughs> sounds like it. It is both of those things at the same time because we have it is a life or death situation and there's all of this brutality and savage things going on and yet these characters, they're all really still high school age and care about high school things at the same time that they care about uh, staying alive. So we try to maintain that balance throughout the uh, throughout the story that they it's life or death, but they they're still teenagers who are going to have teenage preoccupations and talk about teenage stuff and care more about th- their teenage things than what they probably should be caring about. Right. Well, it seems like that all of it's life or death, right? There's there's no difference between wanting to be prom queen for the character and wanting to have enough food to survive or even right. wanting to get out of the quarantine situation. But not if I can't be prom queen. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Or two of our main characters, David and Will, who are brothers, David being the older brother and Will being the younger. We could sort of embody this clash of this survival story and this high school story because David is the older brother who's really sort of focused on his brother's survival um, and his own, and and everything is is life or death in his eyes. Um, meanwhile, Will, who was it was his first day of high school, going into uh, into McKinley High at the beginning of the first book, whether he was nervous or um, excited he was still looking forward to his high school experience and essentially the turn that happened at the in the sort of act one of the, of the book robs him of that traditional high, high school experience so he's always sort of chasing these very um natural teenage dreams and that puts him at odds with david's survival mindset one of the things that I that I like about the book and that we talk about a lot is that the things that were, you know, maybe bad socially for the characters outside of the quarantine situation become useful to them once they're in the quarantine, like the nerds, they liked books, you know, they liked D&D, and then they use that knowledge to create these crazy traps and protection system that surrounds their area of the school. So why, why did you write that kind of thing? And what response have you gotten from your teen readers what i've heard readers get excited about is their sort of fantasy version of high school um good or bad comes to life in this setting of of mckinley high we've got um every every gang occupies its own space and um and those spaces are transformed into sort of their uber versions of uh the gym of the auditorium of the cafeteria and our hope was to make that world feel sort of vast in the way that an epic landscape like Lord of the Rings or, or, or Game of Thrones feels like this, this map of different 
regions, you know, so is this this high school. And I, I think for a lot of readers that comes alive, they can sort of transpose that fantasy version of high school onto their school sometimes and imagine how they might transform their space. And I, and I think feel like that's that's kind of fun. It's a little bit of the we always called it the Swiss family Robinson Robinson effect. Given the resources around you, how would you make something out of it? It's sort of anti-wish fulfillment in a way, if that's such a thing. <laughs> it's funny to think about you guys thinking about Swiss Family Robinson while writing this. That's that movie gets a little brutal though with that pirate attack, you know. I, I didn't read I, the you know, but <laughs> it made a big impression on me as a kid. I feel like I watched it a lot and i haven't seen it since then but maybe i should revisit it with my kids well they they show all the pirates kind of running away at the end like oh they all got out but it was no it was very much a pirate death trap right right (laughs) like it's like the home alone family yeah it's the home alone effect i i oh that really inspires you know excitement i feel like it 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 always did with me and and it kind of works every time it's you know creating traps and just transforming your world it get, gets pretty exciting mm-hmm. i was just gonna say we mostly get teens uh telling us like what group they'd f- they'd fall into or uh, you know telling us that that's their most in the some of the fun for them is uh is while they're reading wondering which group they'd be in and but i'm not sure we get much uh, response about like them being excited that we turned their flaws into strengths yeah, and I feel I feel sometimes, or I definitely in in life, feel that like whatever you are do, you're too much of whatever quality you t- people might tell you you have too much of is usually like what you're good at. So like a nerds, if they are too technical and they keep their noses buried in books or playing with their computer so much, uh, that in the school does turn to be a skill that they can they can fix everyone else's phones and they can. Uh, play with the load different packs of uh, songs and movies or whatever uh, media they've collected from servicing phones onto your phone for a charge or the geeks who live in the auditorium and in real life would be theater kids that are probably annoying everyone else from all of their performance in daily life uh, are able to turn that into a positive and put on shows for entertainment for for an entertainment starved uh, school. They do kind of factor into the uh, economy whatever people's previous flaws or defining qualities like become what they have to offer when now everything has to be traded you trade services and goods to get enough to eat and survive in here yeah it's interesting that you bring up economics for me it was unexpected to see how much of the book is about the bartering systems that they come up with the you know the trading things for food having different skills that become marketable so how did that come through early on it we started to realize like oh food would be the most scarce resource so we came to think of food as replacing money and that that's real currency and so we were definitely just taking great pains as we were writing it to like oh we want to account for how everything would work so at first it was incredibly (laughs) daunting but uh it felt like for it to feel real and ultimately we wanted it to feel kind of to feel scary and we thought the realer we could make it the scarier it would uh seemed when you're reading it in our effort to like we both account for if they made something new it would have to be from materials that were already existing in the school on the day they got locked in but then soon it turned into economics and 
it had to be more than just like you ate whatever food you grabbed. Definitely people wouldn't some weeks not be able to grab the food that's dropped into the school or they would just have a, do poorly that week trying to grab stuff and they'd have to come up with something else that they could offer or they're smaller kids or not ones that are going to do well in a physical struggle. They're going to have to come up with something that, that they can offer. You know, I'll, I'll style your hair and you give me a can of tuna fish or the skaters decide they want to that they're going to be the, the trash people and they pick up all the other gangs trash and dump it in the basement. Like something like that would crop up just because of people, not everyone's going to be able to fight for their an equal share of food in a physical struggle. For listeners who aren't familiar with the field trip that we did, we did a field trip. We quarantined about 220 students in an empty middle school. And for one of the challenges, we had um, a food drop challenge. And the students had their entire gang, their tribe, had to make something to carry as much food as possible. They had a stack of newspapers and a roll of duct tape. And then two of the team members had to go out and try to get as much as possible with their engineered solution and they had about it was like two minutes on the clock i think i think it was a minute and a half actually yeah and and we'll link to the video but all of the students charged out and you know the food drop consisted of these empty boxes like cereal boxes and soap boxes and things that had points assigned to them and kids were piling onto each other and you know fighting each other to get not fighting fighting but you know wrestling back and forth to get some things fighting fighting well yeah (laughs) and and Kristen was like shut it down and and so we uh we blew an air horn and everybody went back to see what they had gotten and this kid came up to me afterwards and he said that was crazy I wrestled somebody over a box of Cheerios and I'm not even hungry. I understand <laughs> scarcity now. And I was like, yes. <laughs> so, so, yeah, it definitely puts things into perspective when you're in this, you know, life and death situation. It just magnifies those those economic principles, definitely. I was really thrilled by the innovation that happened as a result of that food drop exercise. There were such creations out of newspaper and what duct tape. They built these contraptions and some of which worked really well, some of which totally failed. I remember one that was essentially like a a baby Bjorn, right? That they, they had like sort of a front pack teammates could load stuff into and i think that one worked really well that felt like a real lesson of of planning gearing up building something testing it and then failure you really feel because in this scenario you lose food and potentially starve if you have something that works you win the day like i said before that was very validating for us to our to our premise that we weren't just making things brutal for entertainment's sake that uh, kids would really get this uh, crazy competing for and the, the fact that we had to have adults there saying shut it down stop it <laughs> like that kept things anyone from getting injured but uh if this was happening it would, like it is in our book in an environment where there are no adults and no teachers mm-hmm. there's no sort of society there to punish them or that has rules that could give repercussions if they were to do something bad to each other then it i would think it would get as bad as we portray it or at least get uh, violent and injuries and uh, horrible things happening. What was interesting to me is, in reality, it was low stakes. 
I mean, it, it was right. pretty low stakes. It was right. more of a game. But you could, as you said, you could feel the tension. You could feel the anticipation. I was standing there in the center of the gym about to give the go, and I was terrified. <laughs> <laughs> In a good way, you know, in an educational right. way. Yeah. <laughs> Terrified in an educational way. In an educational way. way. <laughs> STEM read. Yeah. Uh. Again, that tension that I feel like we all felt in the room of like, do we shut it down? Do we let this fly? Do we trust that everything will be fine? I feel like that is what we navigate in the actual world of quarantine of, you know, how far do you let things go before you put your foot down? I, and, you know, what's interesting is we're looking at this, you know, in the first three books, you really get what's happening inside the school. And, you know, we kind of think, well, they're, they're teenagers, they're going crazy, there's no structure, and they need that, you know, societal push to behave in, you know, a good and decent way. But then you come to book four, Quarantine the Giant, and you see past the walls of the school and you see how the adults are reacting to the situation. So so how was writing that book different? And why did you uh, kind of change to that lens? I mean, aside from the fact that book three comes to a definitive end, um, why did you want to tell book four in that different way? Uh, I think there had always been that question to some readers found it very frustrating that to go through all three books and to never really get any insight into as to what's happening outside of the school or in Colorado where that's been evacuated that the the school is within like so we felt some responsibility to want to or that it would be exciting to them at least to to show them what's going on out there. And like you said, we did come to a very definitive end, so we didn't really (laughs) leave much room for us to continue (laughs) the school, the story inside the school. But it was a fun, really fun exploration for us, like to just write one episode at a time, making your way across uh, the outside and uh, this world that's been kind of abandoned with just these infected, deadly teenagers uh, scattered throughout it trying to survive and uh, an assortment of unsavory adults who uh, have tried chosen to enter this place for various reasons so it was just very fun for us because to to explore this world this part of the world that we never let anyone see and we kind of hesitated to define ourselves so the fourth book was really an excuse to play with a character that we loved from the beginning and actually always got great feedback about gonzalo the giant uh, the axe-wielding giant who's a member of the loners in the first book but he doesn't factor into the second and third books but we always wanted to find a place for him and then the third book came and went and and we hadn't really found a place and then when we sort of stumbled upon a story for him uh, that factored into the outside world it was kind of a blessing because we got to take this character who who is almost like superhero level in in the scheme of of the world he's big and tough and and he can endure a lot and so it was fun to basically see what what could we throw at this guy how hard could we punch him and really take that to ex- its extreme and and it it felt like sort of a a new thrust for for what sort of the quarantine tone is um and and that 
it was a blast. <laughs> Fun for the readers, not for the character, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, we've yeah. definitely each book we really sort of beat and batter the main character and uh, rather harsh to them. And by the time we got to the third book, Lucy is kind of the main character and she gets the worst of it. And it's it was just so uh, draining kind of to see the most sensitive character in the, of the main characters have to deal with all of that, that it felt really nice to go to a fourth book where we have the biggest and strongest character from the whole series being uh, mistreated <laughs> because you, he would, you could take a chunk out of him and he's just going to keep going and you don't, didn't have to feel as horrible for them. Definitely. A little bit easier to take, I guess. I don't know. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, if you were thinking about concepts of economics in the first three books, was there a, a bigger theme that you were getting at? You know, I, I noticed a lot of things about border walls. You had vigilantes kind of patrolling the quarantine zones. Yeah, I think we couldn't sort of help but some of the stuff going on in the in the real world kind of making its way in, even though we weren't consciously uh, we didn't have a plan that we were trying to trying to reference anything but just the the vigilante adults coming into the infected zone who have they've lost people or faced some tragedy because of the infection and now see infected teenagers as you know essentially not human and they've sort of dehumanized their enemy so that to simplify their worldview and just because they really just want some gut level revenge for what they think has happened to them. I feel like you see that through the more extreme people uh, in society and they're a pain, they're seem so eager these days to find a scapegoat and to build some system of logic around this person. That means like I, I can just decide this person is subhuman, blame everything on them, demand their destruction. So I feel like those, we didn't mean to do it, but a lot, but those kind of, uh, do you do read it and see sort of parallels to things you're seeing in the news? Do you think that it can be a comfort for teens who are reading the books? One of the other writers we've worked with, Joelle Charbonneau, and she wrote the testing, which is kind of ACT on steroids. What if what if your standardized testing could end with people getting killed? Then you might not feel so bad about you know the standardized testing that's actually happening. So, um, right. Do you think that there's there's some kind of relief in in horror? I think there is. We definitely hear from uh, junior high kids or who read our books that it like we present a reality of high school that is so much worse than what they're going to probably have to deal with uh, that it makes them feel a little less scared that they're they've it can't possibly be a life or death uh, str savage struggle with no one getting caught for any horrible thing they had done or facing any repercussions. They, they, I think it can help. And I've noticed that when, when you meet a lot of people that are really into horror movies or horror fiction, they're usually very nice, uh, often sensitive people. And oftentimes they saw something, a horror movie, like a little too young <laughs> and it was a little scarring. And then they feel this urge to go back and sort of see more of it. And in, I think in this uh, effort to uh, withstand it and prove to themselves that they're okay. And I was drawn to scare. It was a very sort of timid and uh, frightened child and uh, was drawn to watching these uh, scary movies and uh, reading scary books 
And it did feel like it kind of gave me a little more confidence that if I have in an imaginary context lived through such horrible, scary stuff, then I'm hoping at least that it won't normal life things that scare me. I'll be able to handle them a little better. So at least while you're reading it, it, it feels that way. And uh, I think that uh, it provides that benefit to kids that are feeling anxiety or trepidation about what they've got going on in their life or school itself if they just uh withstood some monster <laughs> in in a book the night before then uh you know their test coming up or that kid who's mean to them at school isn't quite as uh scary i think some of the attraction of the horror genre is out out of a group many times uh one person makes it through and and so these are stories about perseverance, and perhaps it gives a reader strength to apply that that level of strength to whatever problem they may be going through at the time. Uh, hopefully, it's it's never near as bad as as what's in a in a horror story. But you know, they they work on a metaphorical level, um, but they work on a visceral level as well. And I think that's a that's a pretty potent combo. Yeah, that's Jillian and I were just talking about that before we started to record the idea that you see these other people surviving. And you're like, Oh, well, maybe I could survive yeah. something that's not nearly as terrible. But mm -hmm. I can, if they can survive that, then I should be able to survive what I'm going through. Right. And there's I remember reading that book Endurance by uh, Arthur, I think it is, Shackleton. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's a, that old st account of trying to uh, reach the, the South Pole. or I'm, I'm not sure. It was, but it was the sure what he was doing, but it was just so grueling and horrible. The things that are happening to them as they're all dying off and freezing and starving. And he just con continued on and on. And uh, if you told someone, if you try to pitch someone a story of like, oh, I'm, yeah, it's good. You might want to read it. It's just uh, people to freezing to death and starving <laughs> and uh, like just facing more misery and torture. Like every chapter, it might sound like, why would any have some people's reaction to horror movies? Like, why would you choose to watch that? Why would you want to spend time there? And yet when I read that book, it was very empowering. You, you come to the end of it. And like, oh, it, the fact that he did not quit and he's soldiered on despite all this escalating horrors he's really dealing with uh, did g give you the, just that feeling you, you just said of like, oh, if he did it, then I could have that same mindset when I face uh, problems and uh, unforeseen bad circumstances happen to me. I can no. Shackleton my way through this. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and he saved all of his men, actually. None of the none of the humans on that trip died. Hmm. Right. Okay. The, I in my mind they all almost all of them died. The, <laughs> it's been uh, That's the horror writer in you. It, yeah, it's they all it's died been a couple decades back. since I read that. Yeah. One man emerged. Yeah. He yeah. was a virgin. Jacqueline ate all of them. <laughs> <laughs> so Kristen and I were were going back so over some of our favorite parts of the books and I was thinking about how I teach students descriptive details and uh, you know sensory details and I just wanted to read a, a short passage from the giant and and have you guys kind of give us a clue into how you wrote this why you wrote it what the process is for you guys collaborating on a part like this okay does that sound fun okay 
Yeah. yeah. Sounds great. Okay, so we are we are at the end of the the giant and I'm not going to say too much about where we are because I don't want to spoil it for people who haven't read it yet. So, mm-hmm. and he flew forward with his arms stretched out to brace for a hard landing, and he did land hard. The chainsaw hit the floor first, kicking the spinning saw back at the kid. It sliced through his skull like wedding cake. The kid's whole body shook as the chainsaw ground through bone and brain until his finger fell off the trigger and the blade stopped. Sliced through like wedding cake. That's some sensory so that's detail some, right there. That's some <laughs> sensory detail. So so when you're writing things like this, you know, what's what's the process for going back and forth? Does one person kind of get it down and the other person's like, no, not bunt cake, wedding cake. You tell know? me you cut a wedding cake with a chainsaw. <laughs> Just tell me you did that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I, that is... Uh... Hard to, it's really hard after the fact to remember who came up with which word, but uh, we definitely, we use a lot of food. That sounds like a Tom thing. (laughs) (laughs) It might be my fault. Uh, The, uh, all through the series, like we said before, how food was money in our economy. We we use food imagery through the description a lot, and especially because it's, there's so much talk of people being hungry and hunger motivating them that we chose like food as like a motif with the wedding cake it's really cake at all does most of the work of how uh easily that saw goes through the person's (laughs) skull but i think it's that adding wedding (laughs) really puts a weird twinge on it that like I, i think sometimes if you can use a very innocent image or a very, something that has the opposite feel of what's actually happening it can kind of strengthen the effect that you, you hear the wedding hearing that it's go, that saw is going through a skull like wedding cake hits harder than hearing it uh, goes through oh, it goes through like a knife through sheet cake because <laughs> because of your nice associations with weddings hearing it it coexisting next to this atrocious thing <laughs> uh, makes it seem all the more atrocious. Now I want cake. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and at the end of the day, the book is a love story, right? So <laughs> you've got that mm-hmm. chainsaws and wedding cakes. Um, That's right. Yeah. Every step of the way with quarantine books, we're looking for an opportunity to change things up to take a different approach to an action scene. And in this case, that different approach was chainsaws. And again, going back to Gondalo as this formidable hero, we could afford to throw chainsaws at him. So I I think when the opportunity arose, we, we jumped and he does not make it out unscraped. And again, it was a treat to see how far we could take Gonzalo and if he would make it out alive. <laughs> yeah. And it, it really does come down to that. Some, especially when we kind of uh, go so hard with the brutality and the awful things happening in the story, you often reach a point where like, uh, I think we wrote in a, where, where you just need to find something to kick it up a, another notch to make it effective. But, Cause I think I remember that initially we wrote that whole sequence and there was no chainsaw and it just wasn't, uh, when you read it, it didn't ex- it didn't feel like a, something more than what he dealt with before. So you search your mind and and it just felt like 
I think we can get a chainsaw in here. <laughs> Let's give it a shot. And it worked. <laughs> I love it. Did you did you think about my question? Uh, best chainsaw scenes in, in literature? Yeah, that's a rough question. I, <laughs> I, could, I was surprised that you had that uh, Peter Benchley uh, one. It's like I was racking my brain trying to think of chainsaw battles in literature. I, I really thought of just kept going to Evil Dead 2, you know, for movies. Oh, yeah. It's like, oh, there's a, a guy in a chainsaw battle with his own hand. <laughs> but uh, yeah, you stumped yeah, me. I on. mean, I, I was... stumped you. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Toby Hooper wrote a horror novel, but I don't think it has anything to do with Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Other than the giant squid, uh, it, it hasn't been done before. This is, uh, that'll be an Amazon category. It'll be like horror, YA, high school, chainsaw fiction. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. Uh, and I need a book with a guy wielding a chainsaw, you know, the entire time. Or a love story between him and his chainsaw. There you go. Chainsaws and wedding cake. I, You know, you've got the... Yeah, it's not a bad title. <laughs> you can have that one. Um, okay. So are, do you have uh, upcoming projects or anything that you're working on now? Uh, we've been working on a uh, like a TV adaptation where we're, we're writing a, a pilot script. I mean, we don't know what's going to happen with it or if it'll ever see the light of day, but uh, currently we're, we're, we've been uh, trying to figure out a TV version and uh, adapt it to that, to that format, which is its own uh, struggle. We're having a surprisingly hard to go back into like a, an old, a story you wrote years before and uh, refigure out all the characters for a, a new context. The characters don't have as much time to maybe express what they're expressing in the book, or as a writer, you don't have the opportunity to really nail down who they are in the same way that you do in novel form. And so there's a bit of puzzle making to it. You have to fit pieces and characters in a, in a slightly different way. And as a result, you kind of hone who they are as a character, who they are as sort of a singular character, their, their singular motivation. And, and that has been pretty enlightening as we keep developing these characters. They're sort of having an, a new life in this, this new format. Again, it makes it fun to write. Were there any specific surprises? Anything that when you went back to it, you're like, oh, well, we're not doing that. <laughs> this has to change. <laughs> Uh, we, it wasn't so much that, uh, we saw these things we did that are like, oh God, this, we can't do this again so much as, uh, I don't know, in a book you are inside the character's heads, you're hearing all of their fears and you're able to hear so many more details that we found that we kind of had to add new things. Like it, it we had to take the character's farther and do crueler things to them to get the tone across because it wasn't it wasn't get, get fully getting across when we just were taking the the events from the book and converting them to a, a screenplay it uh required us to uh come up with even worse things to <laughs> to do to them you were too nice so that to them. you you feel the feeling of the books i'm already stressed out yeah <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, what's neat about it, though, is that you realize that you've created a, a world that's kind of fluid. And especially now that there's so many different formats for storytelling, whether it's gra graphic novels or film or TV or the written form, I don't feel like it takes anything away from the original version was a novel it's not diluted in any way. It's just delivered in a different way and can be just as strong and just as impactful. And potentially you're getting a whole different audience for the universe that you built. So you guys are horror fans and every October you have been doing this 31 horror films in 31 days. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, we got into that. Uh, Daniel Kraus, the author, he, he's the one who uh, got us into that. And now we've done it for the past three or four years. I can't remember now. It's the... It, it's become a this blur every October. It's like it's sort of tortuous to to write to to watch that yeah, much. Speaking of endurance, horror. <laughs> yeah, it, like it's fine at first, but then when you really are on the hook for a horror movie every day, like some days you just you have a tough day, and you, I don't really want to watch a, a, a grueling story that just takes the character you know, where they usually start off in a happy family. <laughs> <laughs> around a dinner table and or some kind of happy existence and then things just get worse and worse for them progressively <laughs> until the end of the end of the movie but we do end up seeing a lot of cool stuff and uh it has an influence on our writing i have to say because when we were finishing the third book we were on deadline to hand it in as we were in the middle of watching the 31 horror movies across october yeah, i think it really made things more brutal we were ingesting so much awful stuff uh -huh. <laughs> through these movies that uh it was fueling our minds in the i guess probably sick ways <laughs> so the cool thing about the process is that it forces your hand i mean you've got to come up with a schedule for yourself of how you're going to manage all these movies and what those movies are going to be across 31 days. It's actually, it's just more than you think it will be. So you kind of have to dig deep. I mean, we have all these sources at our disposal now, streaming platforms, but there's so much on them that you really dig way deeper than you probably would on a sort of casual Wednesday night. And as a result, I, I feel like I've found really cool movies from the 50s, 60s, 70s. And then even more exciting is you're sort of tapped into the horror scene that's happening now with movies that have maybe been made two years ago that nobody knew anything about. Uh, the UK in particular ha has a pretty neat little horror scene. And a lot of those movies don't get seen over here, but they are available. I found some real gems that way. Do you have anything on your watch list this year or any favorites that you'd recommend? Uh, I think we're both I excited really... to see Mandy this year. The, yeah, the... You took the words right out of my mouth. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Panos Cosmatos, I think that's how you say his name, is this director who did that movie Beyond the Black Rainbow, which mm -hmm. is this, which is really great. It's got this uh, kind of Kubrick-esque tone and it's all visuals and uh, vibe with hardly any story to it. And I get, now he's coming out with his next movie, 
which is uh, more of a straight revenge story and starring Nicolas Cage. And it's supposed to be Nicolas Cage's sort of most unhinged, most <laughs> Nicolas Cage performance of his career. So I cannot wait. I, it's, I mean, it's out in theaters now and on VOD, but we're uh, waiting until <laughs> we're both waiting until October. As I am with every other horror movie, I notice I am putting it off because I want to save it for October. <laughs> Because the, the worst, you know, in 31 horror films, 31 days is when you it's like the, the bad ones really drag you down. If you can get good movies, like it can be really fun. But if you watch like five unenjoyable horror movies in a row, like it really kills your spirit. Uh, I do want to see this Halloween remake, this David Gordon Green Halloween version, which sounds pretty cool. And the Suspiria remake actually looks surprisingly awesome. I hope it is. That also looks sort of Kubrick-esque. And also what I look forward to every October is all these Halloween scores for these new horror movies that sort of fills the coffers of, of writing music for a year is all this horror scores. Also, I wanted to mention a movie that I saw, I think last year during 31 horror films, 31 days, and that was one called Burning Bright, uh, which is about a teenage girl and her little brother in Louisiana. There's a hurricane coming, and they're boarding up the house to get ready for the storm, and they get locked into the house with an actual real-life tiger. And the movie is about everything that happens over the course of 24 hours as they weather the storm with a tiger in the house. I read that log line and, and I couldn't see it fast enough. Mm -hmm. it, it, it was pretty fun. <laughs> that just took it in a direction I was not yeah, expecting. Not what, <laughs> no, that's not where I was. Tiger I didn't know, right? see the tiger coming at all. <laughs> yeah, I am. I, that is an amazing, an amazing premise. <laughs> I love that idea. Raw from a couple years ago raw like uh, that really it had an impact on me which is i don't know if you've seen that that's like a kind of a, a coming of age story of like a french girl at a boarding school in france who's like she, her she's having like an awakening as a cannibal and like her cannibalistic urgings urges are like uh awakening with her at the same time that she's like having a sexual awakening and it's it's really good but it really intense <laughs> hate it when that happens yeah, <laughs> yeah. very inconvenient yeah. maybe november should be you know the month of rom-coms just to give you guys a little different <laughs> oh, twist you know i love just, this <laughs> just saying. i'm down with that yeah now i'm thinking that maybe the chaser to 31 horror films 31 days is november is i know it's nano remo but maybe it could alternately be a horror novel month and you just sort of come off easy from all those horror movies with just one solid horror book. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> what would you read? I want to read the book of Kali, which is Dan Simmons' first book, which is about a writer who is chasing down a manuscript in Calcutta. He gets an assignment to go there, and evidently the poet who wrote the manuscript has been long dead, but this has surfaced, and supposedly he's alive, and sort of the mystery that, that is going on there. Hmm. It's hard to get through 31 every day. It is. Yeah. What do people do? Do they... Front loaded. I got through like eighteen. I think that's, that's the pinch secret. point. Is eighteen? Yeah, that's what separates you from yeah. the Shackletons of the world, really. Yeah. <laughs> 
every every time it's been a struggle f- mm-hmm. for me to get to 31 like it, it never has been uh not an effort mm-hmm. you know i think the trick also is um horror comedy or <laughs> i i, I want to incorporate my kids into the experience so i put on like the adams family which you know it counts it counts technically is is mm-hmm. a horror movie right mm-hmm. so you find ways to like s- soften your experience a little mm-hmm. bit you, if it touches on the horror uh genre then you know yeah. <laughs> all right well thanks for talking to us <laughs> yeah no problem thank you so much for wanting to have us on this is a, a real treat for us all right yeah, thanks so much you guys you just heard our interview with Lex Thomas. That's Lex Raby and Thomas Voorhees, authors of the Quarantine series. So as you probably noticed from our interview with Lex and Tom, that we have a lot of fun with these guys. We had a great time with them at the quarantine field trip. And, you know, I've I've told Kristen this, that I always get a little sad after our field trips because you do these crazy things and you bring all these people into the space. You plan for it for months and then you meet all these awesome students and these awesome authors and then it ends and you don't get to do it again. But we are very excited that we are going to get to do it again with Lex Thomas. We are bringing quarantine out of the vault next summer for our STEM Read Summer Institute. This is your cure to post-goal depression. It was such a fun field trip. And every time we show the video when we do PD or we're talking to people, you just, you can feel the energy that was in that room and the excitement from the students. So it's great that we have the opportunity to bring that back and teach teachers how to do this with their own students. I think there's a lot of interesting things that you can do with horror. And we talk with teachers and we talk with librarians and we talk about how to incorporate STEM and STEAM learning through books. And when we bring up horror, we get some funny looks like, do I really want to teach this book in my class? And it's like, it's what kids want to read. Right. Why not connect to a book they're already reading and pull those concepts out because they're already there? So you could read some dusty book about a girl on a prairie and nothing happens (laughs) in it, but you could pull out engineering and STEM concepts. Sure. Or you could read some awesome book where the kids are quarantined and they're fighting for their very survival and you can really dig into the concepts. That's the court that we land in. In addition to all those great STEM concepts that you can pull out, horror also gives us a great avenue into ethics and morality and some of those social-emotional standards that schools need to explore. For me, one of the points that struck home was the idea that kids these days are going through so much. I remember being a teenager, and it was all of these problems and challenges that seemed insurmountable. Then you watch these teens or you read about these teens who are going through things 10 times worse than you can ever imagine and they survive and you have that if they can do it well then I can get through what I'm going through right I might fail that test or I might not get a date to homecoming but at least I'm not quarantined in my high school fighting for my very survival yeah it really puts things into perspective a little bit of perspective there So I really liked hearing about uh, Lex and Tom's writing process. I think it's 
difficult to do any creative pursuit with another person, really, as maybe you felt. Really? How would we? <laughs> we would not know that. No, I'm just yeah. kidding. <laughs> Collaborating on, on anything can be difficult. So, so I love to see the back and forth in their process. And I think it was interesting that they started with comedy screenplays, these broad comedy screenplays, but because of who they were and what they loved, that their screenplays got weirder and weirder and <laughs> were about sea hags and things like that. And then they were like, we're just going to write a horror book. It's just going to happen. It was great to get their perspective on a passage from their book, especially one as um, graphic and amazing as uh, a chainsaw battle. (laughs) (laughs) I was very excited when I when I read that part of the book and just just like, this is the craziest thing that I have read in a really long time. It was completely insane. It was completely gory. And it was completely right for that part of the book. It just blew my mind. So I was I was happy to explore that chainsaw battle with them. And also to get their take on 31 horror films in 31 days. I've done it twice now. I haven't quite gotten up to 31 yet, but uh, (laughs) next year's another year. But Lex and Tom both have some great picks. If you go to Twitter and you search the hashtag 31 horror films 31 days, you can get some great horror picks from authors like Lex Thomas, Daniel Krause, Dan Poblecki, and other people who are really engaged with horror. I've been watching Watching them. I don't watch the movies, but I watch the hashtags and they, they are hilarious. I've had to add a couple of the movies to my watch list. And I really liked Lex's suggestion about reading horror novels in November to kind of ease you out of your 31 horror films, 31 days. <laughs> I think I'm going to do that. I have an awesome stack of horror novels that I haven't been able to dig into because I've been watching horror movies. So I'm really excited to read Grady Hendrix's new book, We Sold Our Souls. Edgar Cantero, This Body's Not Big Enough for the Both of Us. Uh, There's some new R.L. Stein, Back to My Roots, Return to Fear Street. You May Now Kill the Bride, which is pretty much the best novel name I've heard in forever. So I'm excited to dig in the into those and keep the party going. And we're also keeping the horror party going with our fall field trip with Kirsten White and The Dark Descent of Elizabeth Frankenstein. Yes, I'm really looking forward to a little horror in December and exploring this book. I loved The Dark Descent of Elizabeth Frankenstein fantastic retelling of the traditional Frankenstein story. A little darker, a little scarier, a little more twisted. It's a wonderful holiday book for all. Horror for the holidays. (laughs) Yeah, my favorite thing about The Dark Descent of Elizabeth Frankenstein, it's told from the point of view of Elizabeth, who in the first book was pretty much monster fodder. But in this book, you see a much more interesting Elizabeth who has a stronger reason to survive and to figure out what Victor is doing with that trunk of body parts. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that trunk of body parts. (laughs) So Jillian, the next time somebody asks us, why horror? Why horror in the classroom? Why horror in STEM read? What are you going to tell them? I think I'd tell them, this is kind of a, I don't know, that gets to our existential crisis, but (laughs) I, I think that life is horror. 
and horror novels and horror movies really do help us make sense of that. And existential crisis aside, they can also help us make sense of science, technology, engineering, and math, because they too have those underlying currents of STEM in them. And if we can pull them out and we can harness them, then we can really change students' minds about those difficult subjects through fun, amazing books like the Quarantine series. Thanks to our guests, Lex Raby and Thomas Voorhees, the writing team, Lex Thomas. You can find more information on our guests in our show notes at stemread.com. If you like the STEM Read podcast, leave a review on iTunes or connect with us on Twitter. Support for the STEM Read podcast comes from Northern Illinois University. Your future, our focus. The STEM Read podcast is produced in collaboration with WNIJ. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.